Good evening, and welcome to episode 64, episode 64 of the Political Mike. You know, with so much going on, the leaked uh, draft of the uh, upcoming or pending Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe versus Wade, uh, landmark Supreme Court ruling, uh, in addition to the fact that you also have the G GOP primaries taking place this past Tuesday, um, you also have a new policy as it pertains to China that the administration, through Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, has uh, announced um, with the backdrop of more uh, Ukrainian aid uh, being tunneled to the Ukrainians for humanitarian purposes. There's so much to talk about to not have episode 64 on this weekend. So I had to bring out the big guns and I had to bring out the panel that we had tonight. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and bring, I'll introduce uh, some of them here. Uh, we have Zach Tolan, uh, who is going to be graduating this weekend, actually from Howard University School of Law. Uh, it's been a minute since we had Zach on the platform. I'm glad to have him back tonight. Um, Zach is a sec, uh, is now, you know, well, he's a born and raised uh, person from Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, he spent much of his youth pursuing opportunities to discuss political and social justice and moral and philosophical issues. Um, upon graduating from high school, he was awarded the National Society of the Sons of the American Revolution, Valley Forge chapter. Um, since beginning, since he started his law school education, uh, he had the opportunity to intern in multiple uh, public interest organizations, including American Atheists, a group dedicated to upholding Thomas Jefferson's vision of a wall of separation between church and state um, guaranteed by the First Amendment, and the Environmental Def uh, Defense Fund, a group dedicated to protecting the environment and advocating for social justice through the environment lens. So Zach, it's such an honor to have you back on, uh, on the platform. Thanks for being here. Looking forward looking forward to what you're going to bring to the table tonight. Uh, we also have, uh, joining back again, um, Professor Fred Cook. Uh, Professor Cook, of course, uh, is a native uh, member of, the, uh, a native citizen of the District of Columbia. He attended uh, the DC public school system until um, <clears throat> attending Howard University School of Law. Um, he serves as an adjunct professor at Howard Law School. Um, he has been an adjunct faculty member since 1992. He's a founding member of the Black Entertainment and Sports Lawyers Association and a member of the Washington Bar Association Hall of Fame um, and a Washingtonian Magazine Top Lawyer awardee. So, Professor Cook, thanks for always making time. Uh, and thanks for being on tonight. Your uh, wisdom is needed tonight. I'm looking forward to having it represented on this platform. Uh, we also have uh, <laughs> we, we also have Cassandra Knopf, another good friend of mine from law school, uh, who's always been interested in engagement politics, uh, dating back to the time when she was writing letters uh, to President George W. Bush at the age of eight uh, about the Iraq war. Uh, she graduated from the University of Kansas in 2016 and earned a bachelor's in English and Korean before pursuing a legal education at Howard Law. Uh, to date, she has pursued several, um, you know, numerous opportunities. Um, she is now working in a, uh, well, remind, remind us, Cassandra, because I, I I fumble it up. Every time. Uh, I currently work at a financial firm, but uh, I um, take the time to either do pro bono work regarding um, helping trans folks um, do their name change documentation and also um, pursuing environmental, social and governance um, in corporate spheres, um, because that's kind of the closest I can get to environmental um, activism in the sphere I currently work in. Um, but I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I love speaking my mind on these podcasts. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, yeah. And uh, she and I were serving on the Environmental Justice Clinic uh, in Howard Law School. And so I've seen, you know, I've seen her policy chops up close. 
Uh, but we also have Jerry Ford, another good friend of mine uh, who graduated uh, cum laude from Howard University School of Law in 2021. Last year, he's currently a corporate associate at Sidley, Sid, Sidley Austin LLP, uh, where he is a part of the mergers and acquisitions, private equity and capital markets practice groups. Uh, Sidley Austin alumni include both Michelle and Barack Obama. Uh, before law school, Jerry was an activist during the protest movement and spent time as a radio host in, in Houston, Texas on KJOZ 88, uh, 88.0 AM, where he hosted a daily talk show in Houston, the Woodlands, and uh, Conroe, Texas. He's made numerous appearances on television, and he has been a commentator on Fox 26 uh, Houston. So, you know, we had to have someone with these kind of credentials on the show tonight. So, Jerry, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me, Mike. And then, of course, uh, last but certainly, certainly not least at all, uh, another friend of mine uh, grew up with uh, Al Oliver Toulousma. Um, Oliver, of course, went to uh, Florida A&M University School of Law, graduated last year, 2021. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, another great friend of mine, he, he is also someone who is a in, great legal mind to have on the, the platform. And he's also working in pu the public sector, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I you know, <laughs> we didn't have a situation like this before that I can remember where a decision was leaked or a draft of a decision was leaked. Um, and it was, from what I've heard from the reporting, this decision was actually, you know, already agreed to uh, in December. But of course, with these Supreme Court decisions, a lot of time has to transpire uh, to make sure that. Um, everyone is in agreement with whatever the majority draft opinion is. And then you also got the dissents coming in. You also got any kind of, um, you know, kind of like opinions that are seconding whatever the majority draft is, but coming at, coming at it with a different angle. Now, you would think with a leak like this, the pro-life movement would be, you know, really celebrating right now. A lot of conservatives would be going around um, trying to galvanize support. Uh, for the Supreme Court seemingly going in this direction. But what's interesting is that you have Mitch McConnell in private meetings telling folks like Senator Josh Hawley, Senator Ted Cruz, you know, if you have an issue talking about it, just just tell them that you're going to get to the bottom of trying to find out who, you know, where the leak came from. So this is focus on where is this leak coming from? And so my question I want to throw out to you guys is, you know, why are Republicans spending more time condemning the leak of the draft of the Supreme Court opinion Rather than celebrating the pending overturn of Roe v. Roe v. Wade, something they've been seeking for uh, for for decades, um, and you know, this just seems to me to be something that seems to be almost at this point inevitable with a six-member uh, cons conservative majority uh, against only three liberal justices. It just seems like a, a a victory that's bound to happen, and you would think that no matter what, you know, regardless of the case someone leaked the draft, this is still going to happen. So this obviously is something to, you know, galvanize support for, um, especially in light of the upcoming, upcoming election season. What do you guys think? It's very simple. They know they won. And so they can pretend that they have some kind of moral high ground. Um, and the only, and, and it's been consistent throughout history that Republicans are protected by the rules more so than they are by the breach of rules. So them throwing, uh, to me, a red herring out there that there was a leak and then that's a breach of confidentiality for the Supreme Court and making that the issue completely undercuts the issue that people are actually talking about, which was the context and the subject matter of the leaked document. Um, I also 
believe, and this is, you know, take this for what it is. I, I don't believe that the person who leaked it was a liberal because of what you mentioned. They make these decisions months in advance. Um, and if someone was really upset about this ruling that far in advance, they would have maybe done something sooner. Um, the other thing is now the court is in a position where if any of the conservative justices who went for the overturning of Roe v. Wade back out, they're going to be accused of buckling to public opinion. So maybe what happened is that they were actually going to make it more moderate. And now that this draft opinion is out there, it doesn't matter. They have to stick to it. Otherwise, they lose face. Um, I don't know. This is all speculation. But the bottom line here is that it's a very sound victory for the Republicans. And them, you know, pussyfooting around it, pardon my French, and pretending that the uh, leak is the real problem here is extremely disingenuous, but I'm not surprised. That's sort of how they've been operating politically for the last five years, if not decade. Um, I'm, I'm extremely disappointed with that being sort of the talking point that some people are taking away from this, um, but it does show where the priorities are. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the Republicans really don't want to talk about the substance of the uh, opinion of the decision because fundamentally they know it's extremely unpopular among the american electorate generally speaking and there's some nuance to that but they'd much prefer to talk about the theft the wrong of leaking it because that's easier to get people's minds around it's simple it's like you did a wrong thing you you you, you reveal something you shouldn't have revealed because the public debate at the end of the day is really not in support of what um, Justice Alito's opinion says. And so I think it's diversionary. I think it's because they don't want to have much of the substantive debate going on until they have to have that debate. And they'd rather talk about this red herring of uh, this horrible thing that happened uh, that the theft and the person should be prosecuted. Now, the reality is there is no crime. There's no law against this. Uh, should should a law clerk or whoever did this be fired for doing it? Probably. But that doesn't mean you get prosecuted. There's no criminal offense involved here. But they make a big to do about about that because, again, there's no point in talking about the substance. Uh, the American public is pretty clearly not in favor of banning abortion, period, full stop. Now, like I said, there's nuances when and where and how and under what circumstances that happens but they're not for banning abortion period yeah and you know go ahead i was just, I, I think also part of you know i think there's a good reason to want to stay away from the substance of that opinion because um if you read through it it's not a very well rationalized opinion um uh, alito he what he loves doing uh, uh is is pulling certain examples of history out of somewhere. Uh, again, pardon my French that I won't mention right now, but uh, he pulls it out of somewhere. Uh, and uh, Allentown, maybe? Sure. <laughs> Starts with an A. Uh, now he, he pulls this, these examples out of history that he uh, you know crafts for his own benefit. But if you look at the examples he gave of why you know abortion was historically illegal, uh, absolutely nothing he mentioned had anything to do with a woman choosing to abort her fetus. It was all examples of somebody else against the woman's wishes acting to cause her to lose her, her, her gestating child. Um, if anything, that speaks more to why it was always, it was traditionally 
left to the woman's uh, discretion and choice as to what to do with uh, the fetus, r rather than that, you know, even the woman didn't have a choice. Uh, and that's just, you know, all of his, even his own examples of why, oh, historically it was illegal. They don't actually speak to what he's saying. Uh, he's he's a very gifted jurist at, at pulling uh, certain historical examples out and uh, sort of pretending that they support his point even when they don't, or taking uh, quotes from other people out of context, uh, and especially uh, snipping off pit, bits of the quote uh, to make them speak for him. Uh, so I think that's also part of why they don't really want us to talk about the substance of it, because if you get too far in and, and too many of the talking heads uh, publicly start explaining the flaws in that opinion, uh, it could undermine, you know, we've got a few months until it's an official opinion, it could undermine some support within the court for following his particular uh, rationale and uh, that particular opinion, if that is truly the majority stance at the moment, uh, if before it's even solidified as the final opinion, uh, the public is talking about how it doesn't really add up to what he's uh, what he's looking for. Yeah, yeah you know, and, yeah, and you know, I, I agree. Like, you know, this isn't the final opinion, and it, it seems to me that you know this opinion probably has been watered down and changed a lot, uh, which is one of the reasons why I agree with Cassandra earlier that I don't think this was a liberal clerk or somebody from the liberal side who came out with this. It makes sense that this was a clerk, um, maybe from Alito's office, who basically loved this opinion. And they wanted to get this out because now the opinion that, you know, Roberts and, you know, the court now is kind of considering is completely different than what Alito drafted in February, right? Because this opinion was drafted in February. Um, and then, you know, that also makes sense why the Republican Party would be kind of upset politically. Because if, you know, this draft that is being circulated right now is not what's going to be put forth in July, all this has done is now create this firestorm and has galvanized Democratic voters before a midterm election where, you know, Republicans are supposed to win, um, sweep this midterm, right? Historically, and just how things have been setting up right now, you know, Republicans were in a very strong position to take uh, over power um, in the midterms. Now with this leak, you know, if this galvanized Democratic voters um, around this issue, you know, then Republicans are looking at a major issue in the midterms, uh, which is why, you know, that leak uh, does them, you know, no good at all. Uh, I just wanted to go back and touch on something that Zach said. I think it's a little bit of, uh, I don't know who did the leak. Uh, I'm, I can't speculate. It could, I've seen conspiracy theories that are compelling for both it being a ideologically liberal cleric or an ideological conservative cleric or judges. It could have been one of the judges, who knows? Um, but I think it's a bit of self-awareness on, I don't know, Lito's, someone's part that I think folk, they generally understand how backwards the American public probably views textualism and originalism. I think if you're just going to have a conversation with somebody on the street and talk about the constitution being interpreted very literally on how the founders written, have written the document, I would venture to, to probably guess that most Americans would not have that view of the Constitution. And I think that's kind of the deeper implication. There's deeper historical implications, but certainly one of the deep implications of this is not just saying that a woman doesn't have the right to choose, but the fundamental right to privacy doesn't exist unless it's explicitly stated word for word in the Constitution. And what does that mean for uh, same-sex relationships? What does that mean for interracial marriage? What does it mean for all of these rights, the privacy that we've read into the Constitution? 
as an extension, an ideological extension of the First Amendment. And I think that's the deeper thing that I feel like they have an extreme self-awareness of. And that goes into, well, why, why do you have a problem with, with uh, historically uh, marginalized identities being able to exercise rights to privacy? Uh, it's probably racism, um, sexism, all the isms, homophobia. Uh, so yeah, no, I, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of self-awareness. And I think they've understood, they understand very deeply um, that while they've been playing a long 40 year game between the, you know, the, I guess what evolved from the moral majority and more mainstream conservatives, this is the beginning of the end game. This is what they've been fighting for, for 40 years. Um, and they understand that the public has largely evolved past that, but just because the public has, doesn't mean they can't exercise that political power and they have. And what's amazing. Oh, Cassandra, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for bringing up the whole textualism thing, because um, part of Alita's opinion that really rang alarm bells and brought up a lot of red flags for folks was his phrase of the, the use of the phrase deeply rooted relating to fundamental rights, which is extremely problematic in a lot of ways if you think about it for more than two seconds, because the only people whose rights are deeply rooted in this country, even if you read the Constitution like in its most liberal and, you know, open way, are white male landowners. Those are the only ones who are explicitly given rights. There are actually people who are explicitly taken rights in the constitution, if we're being very honest. Um, and so the, the idea that this right that has been guaranteed by stare decisis, which these justices claimed they would respect, by the way, when they were confirmed. I, I just wanna put that out there so that we all can recognize the hypocrisy of this moment. Um, and they, they're removing it based on the idea that this is not a deeply rooted right. So then that means what are fundamental rights? Um, who do they belong to anymore? If you're explicitly saying now that they only belong to people where they're deeply rooted, then anyone who is not any of those categories I just listed will always be afraid that Congress or the Supreme Court is going to take away their rights because they, they are currently in the process of doing that. People who have been talking about the fear of the overturning of Roe v. Wade for years I mean, they feel vindicated, but like it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah, right? And, so, and, well, you guys, you guys, you guys are all lawyers, and you all know. I Two more days for me. Two more days. You're already a lawyer. I told you that when you were in my class. But this is all a bunch of hokum. The Supreme Court is complete bullshit, and you know this. You guys spent three years studying the law, and you know. The same court that told you that Brown Board of Education was the law of the land told you that Plessy versus Ferguson was the law of the land. The same court. The only thing that's changed since 1973 and today is the composition of the people who sit in those chairs on the bench of the Supreme Court. There is no scientific change. There is no cultural change. This is all about what the court fundamentally is about it's a regressive institution. It's about keeping the people in power with their power, okay? And that's that's what this is. You know, they use the, uh, the, the rubric of originalism and textualism as a pretext to get to the result they want. They can't possibly know what some old guys in 1770-whatever thought, but they pretend to. They can't possibly know that Thomas Jefferson didn't envision abortion, didn't envision same-sex marriage, 
there were gay people in 1776. So, so they can't know that, but they pretend to know. And, and, and part of what I, I, I encourage you to think about as lawyers and as thought leaders in your communities and people you interact with is to understand that what this opinion does as much as anything else is it peels back a layer of belief that the court would have us collectively buy into, that these are well-reasoned and logical and legally um, uh, uh, important decisions. And they are not. They are power grabs of whatever moment in time in the United States history it happens to exist in. And, and you guys are all too young to understand because you didn't live through Brown versus Board of Education and the, the tremendous um, uh, uproar that created in the, in the country. The people who are now talking about abortion, when, when this decision was, was announced, in, Roe was announced in 1973, the so-called religious right did not oppose it. They did not believe that abortions were fundamentally unchristian, unreligious. They did not believe it. What they did was they transposed their hatred for the court, their lack of their feeling of powerlessness from the court from the Brown decision to this, to, to abortion. And this is just an extension of that. These guys are absolutely corrupt. In, in the sense that all they really want is to is to exert power over over everybody else who's not them. And 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 there is no religious training, there is no religious teaching that mandates this result. But they pretend it does, and then at the same time they argue this isn't a free exercise, this isn't an establishment piece. We haven't created a religion. But they have created a religious imposition on everybody else that you have to believe that life starts at inception as a religious tenet you have to believe that in order to buy into this abortion is bad per se that's not a scientific view that's not a a religious view for everybody some people believe it as part of their religion many others don't so so this whole thing is just a crock and, and yeah, Alito has gussied it up and dressed it up and put a lot of footnotes in it and, and, and talked about cases that he cites as you talked about pulling pieces of cases. And, and, and he's, he's written a nice piece, but it's bunk. And, and, you know, just to put things in context with numbers, 61%, according to the Pew Research Center, 61% of Americans continue to say that abortion should be legal in all. And, and, and then you've got a smaller share of the public, 38% saying that abortion should be illegal, right? And so the public opinion is clearly on the side of of the Democrats on this issue. You even have Senator Susan Collins, um, you know, addressing, saying, you know, at the time before it was confirmed by Justice Roberts that this draft opinion was legit. She said, well, if this opinion is legit, then this is pause for some concern here. Um, I want to also <laughs> throw out the fact that you know, a lot of people are, you know, concerned about what this means with the midterm elections. But before we pivot to that, the only thing I kept thinking about, you know, throughout, we talked about the implications that the right, the, the denial of the right to privacy can have, not just in the context of abortion. It doesn't end at abortion, right? I remember uh, going over a case in constitutional law just a few months ago, <laughs> Eisenstadt versus uh, Bard, 
Uh, if the right to privacy means anything, the court said, it is the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. Right. So, I mean, how does that, you know, you know that's 1972. Roe v. Wade is the following year, 73. And of course, we know, you know, someone mentioned stare decisis, cases build on each other. So how how can we have a, a pending decision that doesn't acknowledge the right to privacy, in fact, acknowledges, uh, says that it doesn't exist, and then we still want to have the right to not have government intrusion as it pertains to, you know, a married couple's decision to have a child. I mean, those rights to privacy seem to just be focused on, you know, marriage. And then if you're doing that, isn't that a slippery slope into an establishment of religion? Are you re are uh, I, um, only acknowledging um, a form of matrimony before you give a right to privacy. Um, Jerry, you look like you want yeah. to jump. Yeah, Mike, I think that's a good point because when you talk about like, um, you know, Einstein, Einstein, I mean, that was an extension of Griswold, um, mm -hmm. which was, you know, talking about married couples and then it's extended to, okay, well, this right of privacy almost is not just about, you know, you being married. This is almost just the individual. So single mm -hmm. people had a right towards like contraceptives and that led uh, through the, the rationale of Roe v. Wade. And so if you look at, you know, what this does uh, and, and what they're attacking, which is that implicit right of privacy, um, you're not just attacking Roe v. Wade, and this is not just about abortion, because now you're gonna look at a whole range of cases that was rooted in this ideal of right of privacy. And if that is uh, like taken out, then there is no legal standing for all these other cases, even interracial marriage, right? Uh, so all these rights that um, you know are found in our constitution implicitly through you know this provision, uh, where we're saying you know right to marry, to rights to, to you to you know raise your kid a certain way, like all these privacy rights that we said that this is an individual decision, um, you have that constitutional right. If you remove that from Roe v. Wade, I mean it's just like it's going to be a, a storm of cases that uh, this court can overturn in the future. I think that is um, you know very very problematic uh, going forward. I, I entirely agree. I also wanted to point something out, and that is that Griswold, um, which predates Roe v. Wade, uh, it was about marital privacy, and it ex pretty explicitly, if I recall correctly, mentions that pregnancy cannot be considered a uh, gendered issue, which is part of why we've had to have this song and dance through the last 40 years in uh, the court spaces regarding contraception, because we have to keep attaching it to different rights that are not related to gender rights, because according to the Supreme Court, those don't really exist per se. Um, so this is actually po possibly, I, I hesitate to say in any single way that this is a positive because it's not, this is a backslide. But what we could do as like, um, you know, social engineers, if that's what we wanna do, is push for an idea of some um, legislation that explicitly, uh, overturns, I suppose, the idea of Griswold and says that, yeah, pregnancy and contraception are gender issues and should be protected as such as, you know, they are a protected class. Or I think that there are ways to address this that they didn't have the ability to politically in the 70s, and that's why we're here where we are now, uh, to just explicitly call a spade a spade and say that pregnancy and these things are gendered issues. And I don't mean to say that they're only women's issues, they're LGBTQ issues, because LGBTQ folks are also, you know, they they lose a lot in healthcare, especially if you are someone who is non-binary or trans and need, you know, pregnancy assistance. Um, so I, I think that if we're going to see a complete downfall of Roe v. Wade and the subsequent 
case law, we do have an opportunity to clean it up and actually make it on point. Um, but <laughs> that's assuming that we have any kind of power. And right now we don't, because as we're seeing, we're losing all these rights. So I, that's me looking into a future where we actually, you know, overcome the fact that the Republicans are making a big push to win these midterms. Um, yeah, we can segue into that. I have thoughts on that as well, but that's- Yeah, I, that's a perfect segue because I wanted to also bring up, you know, why does it have to take this to get a, a fire under Democrats' rear ends? Um, you know, we talked about the need to codify Roe v. Wade for how long now, right? Um, and it's like, now all of a sudden the press conferences start, all of a sudden the news panels have these discussions and our attention is back to where, you know, it should have been a long time ago before we even got to how close we are to the overturning of this landmark decision. Uh, but, you know, now, you know, someone even mentioned it in the comments, you know, they think that the Democrats are going to win now because this changes the game. Um, I've heard people say, well, Democrats are overestimating um, how much of an issue this is going to be. Because typically, you know, Democratic supporters uh, do poorly on off-year elections. And then you also have the fact that this is at the backdrop of so many other issues. You've got inflation going on. You've got, you know, uh, you know, the, the ongoing crisis in Ukraine, you've got a lot of different things playing at the same time. Would this just be drowned out by all the noise, especially when we're still in May and we're talking about election months away in November? Um, but in your view, panelists, um, as it pertains to the codification of Roe v. Wade, I'm curious to get your take on, um, you know, whether or not you think the Democrats are overestimating how much of a political issue the apparent pending overturning of Roe v. Wade is uh, in the midterm elections. Um, and can they, if it, if they are, can they make it a political issue with the push to codify it? You know, one of the things that were, that was masterful with McConnell is that he has been able to just uh, shift his focus since since the, uh, you know, the denial of Robert Bork's seat in the Supreme Court in 1987, I believe, 86, 87. He has been uh, hellbent on focusing his attention on getting things that the mi minority of the country support through the, through the judicial process, right? Cementing it. Uh, we saw it with, the, the, you know, the, the the way he ruthlessly denied President Obama um, his nominee, Merrick Garland, now the FBI, uh, now the uh, Justice Department director, the attorney general, I'm sorry. He denied his seat for a whole year. Scalia died February. Gorsuch takes office, you know, after the new president, Trump, comes in. And we see that he's ruthless in getting him in, that he gets Kavanaugh in. Then he rams Amy Coney Barrett in right, a few, you know, a few a weeks before we had a general election. So in your view, you know, should, you know, are the Democrats overestimating their hand with this issue? And if they are, can they make this a political issue with the codification? Well, Mike, I, you know, I, I think, I can go, Professor. No, no, go ahead, Mr. Ford, go ahead. Yeah, you, you know, I, I hate to bring up 2016, uh, but, you know, one of the things that the Republican Party did to kind of get, you know, these anti-Trump people to come on board and to go and support them is because, you know, they put this issue front and center. It's like, look, the Supreme Court is a major issue. We can have a chance the next, you know, four or five years to put forth three or four justices. And like 2016 was the most consequential election, you know, of our time. And people say that about every election. Oh, this is the most important election. No, 2016 was the most important election. And if, you know, Democrats back then would have made that more of an issue, maybe you could have got people, to, more people come out and vote who wasn't in support of the nominee. Uh, but to your question about this year, as much as, you know, myself personally, you know, I am, you know, uh, clearly, you know, leaning more on the pro-choice side. And, you know, the thing is, 
the truth is, you know, this is not an issue where I think there's 80% of the country is on one side. Whereas with, you know, gun rights, you have like 80% of the country who wants changes in gun rights, but you have this political system who is fighting against it. This issue is almost 50-50 to a lot of people, honestly. You know, so even in a Democratic Party, you have a lot of people who are part of the Democratic base, especially African-Americans in the southern states who are, you know, very religious, who support Democrats every single year. But, you know, this is an issue that, you know, might not rile them up to come out and vote because they might be, you know, for something like this. Um, so I, I think you could be overplaying your hand and you think that just this case by itself is going to have this massive turnout because people are actually more split on this issue um, than, you know, a lot of us would like to admit. So you don't believe the uh, Pew Research Center polls or the CNN polls are are showing a clear picture? Well, even they're saying 60 percent, you know, that's not like this overwhelming wave of, you know, the majority of America is right here on this side. And you have this political system going against it and all these, you know, it's going to be this big wave. It's, it's going to be 50, 50, 60, 40. And that's enough, you know, not to make this such a transformative, um, you know, issue in the midterm that's going to change, you know, entire election. And I think it's also I, important to keep up. Oh, I apologize. Uh uh, I just I think it's also important to keep in mind that, uh, you know, for a lot of the uh, those on the on the right who for these past 50 years or so have been truly, uh, you know, campaigning and, uh, uh, zealously uh, for the overturn of Roe v. Wade. That was truly, you know, for a lot of them, uh, the thing uh, and, and was this huge uh, star in the sky, the thing to shoot for. I don't think for most of the people who are uh uh you know who are horrified by this um even for most of those people i don't think it's quite as driving a, a, that like fundamental on a religious or personal moral level that that drove some of the people who are currently on even people who are currently on the bench who've been fighting to to take this down for for so long i don't think it's just it, it is as universally driving uh, a, a force. Uh, and keep in mind, even for the people who it was that driving for, it took 50 years. Uh, so I don't know that, you know, this, uh, uh, this, this uh, midterm, uh, we can say, oh, we, we want to try to codify Roe v. Wade uh, because they just took it down. So uh, everyone get out and vote. I don't know that that's going to be the same kind of push that, uh, you know, vote now or they're going to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg with someone who's going to take down Roe v. Wade was. I mean, obviously, it didn't work out because they shoved her in so quickly. But that was getting people to the polls. Uh, that was that was inspiring people, and also, you know, you know, get him out of office. He's been here for four years. We need to get him out now. Uh, that was really forcing people to the polls. I don't think that this, as horrifying as it is, I just I don't think that it's going to inspire the same amount of dedication uh, on the even on the liberal, the most liberal base that. Um, would be necessary to guarantee uh, holding on to the seats, uh, it, especially with you know inflation and the, the Fed raising interest rate. You know, things are not going well for people uh, on, on other levels. So I don't think this is going to be enough to carry it. But at the, at the same time, I do think that, you know, even going back to the, what we said earlier with McConnell, they, they did not want oxygen on this. You know, they, they would, if I think personally, they would have preferred all this to happen in the cloak in the dark, right? And then they come out with this decision when it's final and it's too late. But now you've got people, you, you've got an opportunity now to mobilize, regardless of whether it happens, right? You do have an opportunity now to mobilize people, um, you know, through the political process uh, 
to take action because now it's like you know we've been hearing about you know how the federalist society uh has just chosen people for these positions who are like based on one litmus test are you against roe v wade right and we've seen how effective these conservatives have been and especially with one term of trump getting so many judicial appointments in and you know i think you know if they had their way we wouldn't know anything about this up until now like we wouldn't know until it's already too late uh cassandra i think that the democrats have disappointed their base a lot um and the this is galvanized i i think i disagree a little bit with jerry's uh, interpretation that this is not a galvanizing force per se for a lot of people because like it it fundamentally affects at the very least 50 to 52 percent of our population um but the democrats keep saying vote us in and we will i don't know forgive student debt vote us in and we will give you universal health care vote us in and we will and we haven't seen a single one of their promises kept um and they keep saying it's because the filibuster and that's real here's what i see what this was was an opportunity it's a glove that's been thrown down whether or not the republicans meant to or not but it's a glove that's been thrown down and the democrats have an opportunity now to end the filibuster codify roe v wade follow through on some of their promises um, because they have a majority, they have the House, they have the Senate, and they have the presidency. If they cannot do something about this now, when will they be able to do it? And I think that that's kind of where a lot of the most active and like advocating polit political heads right now are, is like, what else do you want from us? We voted you in, we donated to your, we, we did everything that we as small people can do, and all we're seeing for it is our rights being taken away. So, so what do you say to those who are like, look, the Democrats want to do this, but then you still have Manchin and Cinema Because if, even if you go around that filibuster, right, even if you go around that 60 vote threshold and you say, we're just going to do a simple majority, you still need all of your caucus in line. And so you even have Manchin and Cinema even indicating that they're not willing to put their necks out on this issue. Um, then put pressure on them. Like, I, I don't know what pressure they can, but they're the politicians. We're not. They have their leverage. They can do like it's. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. The two of them have been stalling. They love their little position as the linchpin of the, of the party. They love the attention. They really think that it'll help them in their reelections. I, I genuinely don't know if that's the case, but um, I, I think that the Democrats as a political party are extremely messy about trying to keep everyone in line on core issues. And that has allowed them to flounder and be, remain inactive while people in the country are very actively asking them to please pass laws to help us and protect us. And there's only so much like incompetence that people really want to deal with is, is the perception from the populace to now we as lawyers and law students are fully aware that it's a lot more complicated than that. They have to do X, Y, Z, but you see very clearly how efficient the Republicans are getting their um, policies passed through versus the Democrats. And part of that is the Democrats' fault, especially I would say moderate ones, because they don't go and stick their necks out for the policies that people are trying to vote in with these younger and like more freshman Congress people. So 
I guess the bottom line here is I don't know. Mansion and cinema are certainly a barrier, but they're a barrier that the Democrats can deal with internally. But we could we have a very active issue with the Republican Senate right now and a very active problem with this Republican led SCOTUS right now. And those need to be addressed. I, I want yeah. to jump to Cassandra because um, I feel like I'm, I'm I, I'm glad I'm glad that she's she's pointed this out. Um, as far as your first, I have to pass the bar in July, so I'm not a lawyer yet. I just have to make that clear. Um, so I have to pass the bar. Um, to answer your first question, Mike, uh, this is absolutely an issue politically, and I would anticipate it being in somewhat of an issue in November. Um, I don't think it's going to be absolutely, you know, the issue. Uh, if I just had to take a guess, but I think deep down, I think. To Cassandra's point, I think Cassandra is right. They have disappointed their base for a very long time. And I think the reason why is because Democrats, I would go back as far as 19, once they got shellacked in 1980 and 1984, Democrats became extremely comfortable being the minority party in the United States. And I feel like even uh, uh, Vice President Harris speaking, it was like yesterday or the day before, um, about how dare they, you do understand, if this would be me, Impressing Vice President Harris, uh, that you control the presidency and the Senate and the House right now. So I think Democrats are just not as shrewd as Republicans in governing because they've just been so comfortable after getting shellacked. I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, cry a tear for, for Robert Bork, but I'm sorry. Uh, the shellacking, I keep using that word because I can't think of a, a word that more adequately describes just how quick to capitulate to to conservative views Democrats have been over the last 40 years. You have to understand since 2000, Democrats are five and one in the popular vote and elections. The get out the vote message works. To Jerry's point, when they talk about get out the vote and this is the most important election, 2016 was the most important election, Democrats won that election. <laughs> they only, they've only lost 2004. They, that's the only presidential election that they've lost. And I think I think it's just, it goes to show, I think when when, you're talking about governing, governing an election or governing a country once you've been elected, Democrats have not been willing to be as shrewd or make the pol the politically tough decisions in order to push their agenda the way that the Republicans knew they were going to lose in 2020, but they still pushed Amy Coney Barrett anyway, knowing that they had done a complete 180 from their position when Merrick Garland was um, up for nomination. They know this. They know that the American people know it and they want somebody to try to stop them. And again, going on 35, 40 years now, Democrats have not shown the political willpower to do this. They're capitulating to the moderate views, which is essentially, again, the reason why I bring up 1980, because 1980 is seen as this indictment election in which Jimmy Cardigan's painted as a super leftist, runaway inflation, clearly leftism doesn't work. And I think Democrats have spent the next 40, 50 years trying to chase that moderate vote. That's why Bill Clinton gets elected in 1992 because he's seen as the adult in the room. That's why President Obama gets elected in 2008 because while he's painted as this extremely progressive icon, he's governing as a moderate. He's telling you during his campaign, he's bringing independents, he's bringing conservatives, he's bringing liberals to the table. I'm gonna govern essentially as a moderate. And I think Joe Biden, again, painting himself in that Bill Clinton style, adult in the room, Democrats have been chasing the same thing 
over and over. They have not gotten over the trauma that was the 1980, 1984, 1988 presidential election. They just haven't gone over it. So Democrats can't can't vote. And then I think moreover, I'm sorry, this is just because this is the reason why I decided I wanted to come on, Mike. <laughs> I messaged Mike and I said, Mike, I need to come on and talk about this. Cassandra's um, uh, point, Democrats have effectively lost the argument. And I think this case is a great example as why Democrats, as effective as they are as far as getting people and mobilizing people to get out to vote, they lose the cultural battle as far as especially civil liberties. Civil liberties, when you say civil liberties, it's essentially you assume somebody with a conservative uh, uh, ideological persuasion instead of essentially what's grown civil liberties, notably the right to privacy, have been historically issues that the left has been um, championing for the last 60 years. Civil liberties should be a squarely liberal um, issue that's easy to score, but instead it's like, oh, right to bear arms. And then like, you, I'm sorry, liberals have allowed conservatives to dominate between the right to bear arms and then you know, the 10th Amendment, no no federal government overreach to dominate the civil liberties conversation. And they're absolutely effective in that messaging and mobilizing their base and being able to take a small group of people and turn them into the majority. But Democrats just give up the, the messaging battle. So a combination between trauma since 1980 and then not effectively winning the messaging battle, you get a situation where you have a 6-3 majority. That's, that's, that's what happened. Yeah, I, I think I think Oliver just hit it right on the nail. And get back to what Cassandra said. I, I agree with almost everything Cassandra said. And you know, to be honest, it, it's kind of easy for us to look at like Manchin um, and the senator in Arizona and say, you know, these are two people who are holding up the agenda. But the the honest truth that we don't want to talk about is that they are representing their people in those states, right? Those people in West Virginia uh, believe what you know Joe Manchin is you know is standing for, right? Like over 50 percent of those people voted for donald trump so we are losing the messaging uh with those people on the ground right so like these are political actors right they're going to act in their own political interest so if it becomes in Manchin's interest that his people in west virginia are you know more progressive or they buy into this more you know liberal agenda he's going to follow suit right so you know this is not just joe Manchin just you know just doing this just just for fun it's like He's doing it in his political interest. So the question is, well, how do we change that calculus? That calculus is getting to the ground, getting your message out and changing people's minds where now you're a senator of West Virginia. It's not in your interest to hold up the Democratic agenda because you don't get voted out. Right. So I, I think on the ground, we have lost, um, you know, the, the messaging war in a lot of these states in the middle of the country, a lot of these states, you know, in, in, in the south. Uh, in West Virginia. Um, and, you know, I think we need to get back out there and make the argument of why the more liberal agenda is the best agenda going forward. And then, you know, when you have um, power, you, you know, you won't be dealing with, uh, you know, this situation where you have these senators who have to go against the agenda in order to stay in power. I guess I'm going to be the bad person here. I, I, I think that you guys are missing a, a very important point. The Republicans are not competent at anything. They don't have an agenda. What they say is no, they don't have an agenda. Democrats have been very successful in some, some instances of very large pieces of legislation, but you can't do stuff if you don't have the votes. Right. And part of the reason you don't have the votes is because of something that's real simple is racism. You cannot ignore 
the reality of racism. Why is it that from 1954 until now, you have so much of the Southeastern United States virulently Republican, if you want to call it that, voting against these kinds of things because they feel a great sense of offense from the Civil War, from losing the, the, the civil rights struggle, from judges telling them that they had to do what they did not want to do. Republicans believe philosophically, culturally, in privacy. They believe they have the right to certain things, to keep and bear arms, to, 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 to associate with whoever they want to associate, to marry whoever they want to and not have the government tell them what to do, except when the government doesn't do it the way they want to do it. So, so, so the challenge, the uphill for Democrats, liberals, whatever you want to call them, in messaging to people, in getting them to make that buy-in, irrespective of whether people live in the, in the North or the South, is that you have to get past this idea of, of the impact of racism, uh, sexism, homophobia that exists in so much of the American electorate. So you're right, Mr. Ford, Jerry, uh, not Jerry, uh, uh, Joe Manchin is absolutely articulating the sense of his electorate, okay? He's not just yanking the Democrats around because he can, he's doing it because it works for his political interest to some degree as Christian cinema, but, but all the senators do that. So, so the challenge then gets to be, how do you change that? And, and I think you are correct, collectively you are correct, that there has to be a better connection. Bill Clinton tried with the so-called um, uh, uh, centrist Democrats to get close to that Republican notion and, and try to have this neoliberal notion of what liberalism was and to try to win more votes. Mixed success. The Republicans are unvarnished in their desire to tell people we're going to stop these liberals and they create this whole thing of culture wars which is a fiction but they create this that we're going to keep them from polluting your children's mind with crazy books in school we're going to keep those queer people away from your children we're going to not have you uh kill babies and they have these horrible pictures of, of fetuses uh plastered on billboards and say you can't be for this and nobody wants to be for that, okay? Nobody wants to be for killing what looks like a human being in miniature form and having them splattered on some table. Nobody wants to be for that. And those are the kind of messages that the, the Republicans have been willing to put forward to keep power, to keep in control. But when it comes to articulate, turn that into actual public policy, they have not been very successful at all. Because what they've done is stop stuff. They haven't done much stuff. Now, I get you, I, you know, obviously you have to talk about in recent times the, uh, the, the tax bill. But the reality of that is many Democrats wanted it too because it was full of stuff that they wanted for their corporate supporters. But, but, the, but, the, but the Republicans have not really been very effective at anything. They couldn't stop, they couldn't kill Obamacare. They tried a bunch of times and couldn't kill Obamacare. They don't have an agenda. What they have is a willingness to stand in the way of progress. And they articulate it by saying, this progress is going to hurt you because it's going to bring queer kids into your school. It's going to make you live next door to queer people. It's going to have a bunch of groomers 
bothering your children. And that's what terrifies people. And the Democrats haven't done a good enough job of making people appreciate the fact that those differences are not threats to them. That this 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 religious driven fair fervor is the same thing as the Taliban that we hate in 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 the Middle East. It's it's do it my way or you burn in hell. And before you burn in hell, you're gonna burn here on the on in, in on, on earth before we send you to hell. And we and we've got to do a better job of that. But the Republicans are just a big no group of people. They haven't really done anything. And 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 well, anything, but on a public policy basis. I wanted to throw this in. They got their minds around was we're going to keep these judges because we can't get enough votes to create national legislation. Yeah. But we can create enough judges that when these cases get to the courts, the judges will give us what we what we want. And yeah. that's what the federal society is all about. Minority rule. Mike, if I jump in for for one quick second. Um, you know, I, I agree. I agree 100%. What has concerned me over the last five years is really there's been this big change in demographic, right, with a lot of the different states, especially like down in, in Texas, where, you know, there's this idea that over the next few years, Texas is going to become a blue state because you have now this new demographic of diverse people in this state. But what we have seen, if you pay attention to the last election and even the midterm elections, you know, you have this growing, you know, like the Hispanic population, growing diverse population. But the Republican Party, is connecting with like 35 to 40% of those people. So their coalition become more and more diverse uh, where you won't see Texas turn blue anytime soon because this new coalition is going to be a diverse coalition. So it's not how it has been the last 30 something years where you had all these you know, people who were just you know, racist uh, in the rural areas versus the metro areas. Now you have a more diverse state and the Republican party is you know, winning um, or connecting with some of these people um, you know, on these issues. So I think we need to get into that fight and try to figure out why are they connecting with people of color, right? Why are they growing their coalition and how can we get there and explain to them how this is against their own interests? Right. I mean, yeah, the border issue is big for uh, Latinx people in the United States who've argued that we got here legally. Why are these people here illegally and why are they getting what we don't get because they didn't do it the right way? And that resonates with a lot of people in uh, along the border in 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 uh, Texas, who happen to be Hispanic, and it's it's unfortunate that that pull the ladder up mentality, that crab in the barrel mentality, pervades so much of that community that they would sacrifice themselves and their sh- long-term interests for what they perceive as a short-term gain. It's unfortunate. And I, I just want to throw this in there. Um, you know, I came across an article by a uh, gentleman a reporter, Jake Flatley, of you know, who's a West Virginia reporting, and he indicated, this is 2019, September 23rd, that more than two thirds of West Virginia voters, more than two thirds, say it's important for all West Virginians to be able to get a full range of reproductive health care, including abortion. And that's according to a survey by Heart Research. This needs to be in an, 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 uh, <laughs> Senator from West Virginia's face. Um, you know, the, 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 the Democrats have the public support and they have to be able to channel it in the direction um, that benefits them politically. You know the the argument, but but, but but Democrats don't feel abortion the way so many of the noisy minority of Republicans do, mm. and 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult issue because most people don't get abortions, most most people don't have abortions in their lives, mm. and so you, you feel some kind of way about it, but you're not really animated by it. And I think Mr. Ford is absolutely right. I I, I think people, it's difficult to animate people about the abortion issue 
in a in a in a, in a large sort of way. Uh, there there's a hardcore people on on either end of the spectrum who are really animated all day all day 24/7. But the great majority of the people are kind of like, yeah, I think there ought to be abortions for rape and incest. I think there ought to be abortions for rape and incest and when the mother's health is at risk. I think there ought to be abortions for rape, incest, and mother's health is at risk and the baby has some horrible deformity. And, and there's a range in that middle that kind of make it difficult for people to feel like really cranked up about it. And, before, and that's, the, that's a challenge. Before I jump right, to you. Just, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. And, Go ahead, Kazar. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> That's why it's been so easy for Republicans to actually get some galvanization behind it, because it's very simple. If, you know, the moment life starts is at conception and then all the way until the child is born, then it's extremely simple for someone who's not at all politically or medically involved in anything to have an opinion because there's no longer any nuance. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I remember when January happened, the Supreme Court actually blocked a Biden COVID vaccine mandate uh, on businesses for privacy reasons. And, and you're thinking, you know, you can recognize bodily autonomy when it comes down to the COVID vaccines. You can recognize the, the need for privacy in that context. But all of a sudden, you're arguing that the right to privacy doesn't apply in the, in the most, you know, like a, a decision where only the doctor, the person's spouse or the person's significant other should be involved in that situation. Now you're saying privacy doesn't apply here. Um, and so, you know, this is solely, this is solely political, the, the, despite the song and dance that Amy Coney Barrett gave about how she doesn't want to talk about, uh, she, she doesn't want to talk about super precedents. And then she was pressed about, about it with Senator Klobuchar. Um, and then she defined what she thinks a super precedent is. And then she only really wanted to give a crash course, one-on-one, uh, course in, uh, constitutional law. She didn't want to talk about what she would do if she were a Supreme Court justice, because when she gets in, then she's going to operate in different direction. I mean, Oliver. Yeah, no, I think, again, the whole conversation about uh, uh, civil liberties, I think, is because Democrats have fundamentally lost the issue. I think, first, it should just be, like, a woman should have the right to access this form of health care. Like, I don't think we should have to take it to a legal, a legal analysis to determine that. It just should be allowed, period. However, I think within a legal context, I think the fact that Democrats have been so unwilling to push, again, this civil liberties narrative okay, well, do you think a woman should have the right to privacy? Do you think that um, we're, we're abrogating somehow a civil liberty that's existed for the past 50 years? It's just something that I have not seen Democrats willing to do. And I think to, to a Professor Cook's point is that Democrats aren't just animated the same way that conservatives have been animated over this issue. And I think it leaks and it shows um, and how Democrats, and certainly not interest groups, but how elected Democrats choose to talk about this issue. I think, again, if, if Democrats were half as hardcore as conservatives, liberals, um, it would this would not be as, as big of a conversation. I sorely believe I think Democrats aren't trying hard enough once they get power. They didn't try hard enough in 2008 to 2010. They're not trying hard enough now. I get, you know, the relative crises that were the financial crisis of 2008 and COVID, not even relative, super crisis that was, that is COVID, uh, but they're not trying hard enough. We just got to call it how, how we see it. They don't try hard enough when they get power. They're more comfortable being able to hold the moral high ground instead of 
doing what's necessary in order to maintain power and expand access for everyone. And I think supporters should be right to call that out. Like, I don't care. Like, I understand. Like, I'm not trying to, to, to in any way denigrate anyone's intelligence or what they see as politically expedient. But I think we we also have a form of intelligence that we can tell when people are not fighting hard enough for the issues that they promise to fight for once they're elected. And Democrats, time and time again, have failed to deliver, even um, when they mentioned the Affordable Care Act, as far as they couldn't get um, the Affordable Care Act gutted. I think they didn't get it overturned outright. However, they did gut the single-payer option, which was kind of the, the crown jewel of that piece of legislation before they had to compromise on that issue. So I don't know yeah. if that was an outright loss for uh, conservatives, even though it wasn't, uh, they were able, the Obama administration was successfully able to argue that effectively this is a tax under the tax and spending power. So you talk to people who got health care, it wasn't a loss. That was not a loss. Now, was it perfect? Absolutely not. But it, that, that is in no way a loss because if you had been a Republican, if, if the Republicans had their way, Hundreds of thousands of people have no health care whatsoever. It was like 12 million or something, wasn't it? Who's like, well, yeah, mil- yeah, hundreds yeah. of million would have had no health care whatsoever. So I, I agree with you. It was not perfect, but it, it, that's okay. Uh, if, you, if you're one of that 12 million who has insurance that wouldn't have had it otherwise. Before we jump to you, Jerry, I said single care. I meant a public option. Public option. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand because because the thing that should have happened is it should have been the functional equivalent of 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 Social Security. That that's what it should have been, and 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 I get that. I I agree with you. That's where it should have been, but it didn't get there. But where it got, it provided health care for people who would have had zip if they if that if you didn't take that step. Before I jump to you, Jerry and Zach, I just want to throw this out there. I remember, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, David Hogg was saying, you know, when we got a new, um, you know, head of the ATF, I believe the uh, the individual who's in charge of, you know, making sure that they're putting out the, the administration's policy on uh, gun control. Um, you know, he said, when you have fifty percent of the progress, I mean, when you have fifty percent of the of the power, you get fifty percent of the progress. And so, when I'm looking back at the previous two years, I'm looking at the fact that we got the American Rescue Plan. Right. That wasn't a guarantee because Manchin wanted to have he didn't want, um, you know, he wasn't just willing to concede 400 million uh, unemployment um, uh, tax credit to 300. He wanted it to end way before October. And so the fact that it extended when it did, I think around September, um, that was a that was a big win. And you got the one point two trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure deal. Uh, You've got, you know, one point nine trillion covid relief bill the highest appointment of federal judges since Reagan, uh, a halt on federal executions, um, commitment to combating climate change. We have a justice department that's now acknowledging uh, environmental uh, racism. And we have a like an office set up just for that. The Justice 40 initiative is a big part of that. The su- support for um, you know people who are looking for a job, reduce unemployment numbers. Um, so we, we do have, you know, the Democrats have delivered, I think, where they could. The, the issue is we only have 50% of the power and so we're doing it with our with one arm behind our back. And so with that in mind, I think the, the message is, I think, better than what McConnell said when he when they said, well, what is, what is your message in the midterm? And he said, we'll tell you after the election. Our mes- the Democrats message is, you know, we this is what we've done with folks who are willing to put their own personal ambitions ahead of the party's agenda, um, put real Democrats in office. Right. Like Val Demings in Florida, like Tim Ryan in Ohio. And see, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet, basically. Jerry? 
Yeah, I, I want to comment on Oliver's comment about you know why people aren't really animated on this this issue with uh, abortion because you look you look at like, our coalition, Democratic coalition, a good portion of it they make this distinction, right? including um, President Joe Biden and a lot of African Americans, where personally they're saying you know what, I understand I'm against abortion, I have this strong religious beliefs, but from a policy standpoint, I agree that there should be access to safe um, procedure here, right? There, um, like a prohibition does not work, right? So there's a distinction where they they um, you know, don't believe in abortion, or they have these strong beliefs where they can relate to the opposition, but at the same time have this different, more nuanced uh, perspectives coming from like a policy standpoint. And because of that dynamic, I don't think that people are very, you know, animated um, about this issue. If, if you have this strong belief that, you know, I really don't believe in abortion already, uh, you know, I have this policy viewpoint, but it's not something that's really going to turn me up, uh, you know, because, you know, Joe Biden, he he's the same way, you know, he's a Roman Catholic, and he has always been very forefront about why you know, he is against abortion, but he, you know, has a different opinion from a policy standpoint. So I think that's the difference why you see more um, energy from the pro-life side than you see from like the Democratic uh, coalition. Separation yeah, of church but, 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 but you're right, Mr. Ford. Abortion is a moral, ethical issue. It should not be a political issue. And 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 what the right some of them on the right have done, have turned a moral ethical issue into a political issue. Because clearly my perspective as a person on the planet, a, a, a parent, I'm not pro-abortion. I don't want to kill another human life. I'm not, I'm not for capital punishment, but, but, but that's my belief. And, and I think if I can persuade you to do that or encourage you to, to behave that way, that's, that's the best I can do. I should not be in a position to force you to believe the way I believe. And, and you're right. That's part of the challenge is that many Democrats look at this as a social, ethical, moral issue and don't want it to be in the political context. And, and, and the other side wants to jam their moral, ethical philosophy down your throat as a matter of law. And I just think that's the wrong way to go at it. I think that people ought to uh, be able to do what they do. You know, uh, Tolan, Knopf, and Taylor will remember this from my class. The Constitution is in there, and if you look at the Ninth Amendment, it says every right that's not enumerated in these other amendments is reserved to the people. So this foolishness that there's some kind of rights that are better than others is nonsense. It's not what the Constitution says. But 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 my point though is 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 that you're right. It's difficult to animate people who don't have in their gut this burning, I've got to stop killing babies kind of philosophy, as opposed to I want to promote abortion. Because that sounds kind of whack to say, I really want to abort babies wherever I can. That just sounds kind of nuts. And it's not what people literally mean, but but the, but the right will turn you into that kind of monster in, in their minds. And, and so it's, it's, it's hard. Because people have a, 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 on a spectrum of how how fiercely they want to protect the right to abortion. I believe that I, I my fierceness is about protecting the individual's right to make decisions about their lives. I believe that is a God-given, constitutionally given right for them, and they ought to be free of government interference in making those personal decisions. And and that drives me. You know. Not so much because I want to, to promote abortions qua abortions, you know. Zach? Yeah, I, I'd just like to, uh, if I may, uh, step back a second to, uh, I think Oliver was was speaking about uh, 
you know, the, the, the liberal party, Democratic uh, party has for a long time, you know, failed to uh, deliver on some of the, the these you know, civil liberties promises that it has made. I, I think it's important to keep in mind as well, though, that uh, inertia is a real thing, not just in physics, but also in politics. And the the liberal parties, uh, specifically when it comes to like civil liberties, uh, that's fighting against a massive amount of inertia, particularly from people in power who don't want to see and and don't need to see an expansion of civil liberties. Uh, we had a very successful period in the 1940s to 60s where there was expansions uh, of all sorts of different civil liberties through the courts and through uh, statute, uh, statutory measures. Uh, but in about 1968, it pretty quickly stopped uh, for two main reasons. Uh, one was the election of Richard Nixon, and the other was the failure of Abe Fortas uh, to become uh, the replacement chief justice for uh, Earl Warren. Uh, and when both of those things happened, number one, we had a, pol uh, a political landscape that started uh, moving back towards more conservatism uh, in the, the government itself, uh, and also the court uh, very quickly shifted from the liberal Warren court to the much more conservative Burger court, and they got even more conservative again with the Rehnquist court, and then got even more conservative again with the Roberts court. And I don't even know what we're calling the current court because it's not the Roberts court anymore, but uh, it's even more conservative than either any of those courts were. Um, with that landscape in place, especially with a court that is itself, I think the embodiment of inertia at this point, it's incredibly uh, conservative and uh, doesn't want to see progress, um, if, if we can uh, phrase it that way. Uh, it's very difficult to push for uh, civil liberty, uh, you know, a, a, <laughs> uh, additional civil liberty uh, uh, recognition. Uh, I, you know, I will say, you know, uh, back to the um, uh, American uh, Affordable Care Act, uh, I believe it was back in 2010, there were Republicans who were pretty openly saying, we got to stop this because people will get used to it and then we'll never be able to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's what happened. Uh, th there's no way in hell that, uh, at least not anytime soon, that even a completely Republican government is going to be able to just take away the Affordable Care Act. They can keep undermining it as they've done, but if they try to just take it away, there will be a civil revolt uh, because you know there are 12 million people who have health care only because of that. Even in some of the most uh, reliably conservative areas, they are now desperate to keep the Affordable Care Act and they riot in town halls when they're uh, conservative uh, uh uh, representatives talk about taking it away. Uh, it's all about inertia, and it it is tough to generate the amount, especially you know, as, as Professor Cook said, when it may not be the same kind of driving force for some people to get this particular thing done. Like for for some people, it's not as driving to secure abortion rights as it would be to prevent abortion. Uh, to to get that additional energy to overcome the inertia of not having this particular right recognized, force it through to get it there, and then be able to hold it long enough that it becomes recognized and and uh, comfortable for people, you know, uh, codified uh, not codified but you know constitutionally recognized right to receive an abortion was first fully recognized in 1973, and for 50 years uh, a significant portion of the country refused to recognize that. Uh, as a standard uh, and spent the entire time fighting against it. Uh, and, and we've seen what, what happened uh, or what may well probably will happen in the next couple of months uh, simply because it uh, never had a chance to settle. Um, 
So, you know, uh, I think it is important to recognize those victories where they are, that there have been steps forward. But it is uh, it is it is a struggle. It is a fight uh, to, you know, push that rock up the hill, even though it's going to keep trying to fall down uh, every day. So, yeah, folks, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go just the last thing I wanted to say, like, as, a, as you know, a woman and as a queer, um, this is emotionally extremely devastating to me in my community. Um, it's it's been extremely rough uh, recognizing the number of people in my life who are going to be directly impacted. I, I have trans folks in my life who already struggle with healthcare. We know that this is in conjunction with the moving uh, Republican movement, sorry, to uh, like essentially criminalize the existence of trans folks. It's not a surprise that all this is happening all at the same time. It's just the, uh, the psychological toll this takes on a certain part, portion of the population of like giving a lot to the Democratic Party, giving everything really to Democratic Party in this hope that they will champion and then just being left to hang and dry and then just being asked to continue to donate and vote is, um, it, it is wearing on the population. They, they don't have any faith anymore. So, and this is an opportunity the Democrats can pivot on. They can do something about this if they really push hard enough. And that would do a lot of favors for them in the midterms. If they can bring a victory, a solid victory, even if it's one like this, that as you mentioned, it's not one that people rally around as like harshly as for example, gun rights or something. But if they could do that, Roe v. Wade is one of the few cases that every American knows by name. So even if they aren't fully into abortion, they'll know the Democrats did something. And so, you know, we spent over an hour talking about this one issue and I know uh, we had an ambitious agenda tonight, um, but I'm, you know, this, is such, this has been such a rich discussion. But I'm I'm dying to know. And I know time has already ex, ex, expired. Um, but I would be remiss if we didn't at least touch one one question pertaining to uh, this past Tuesday's uh, uh, you know primary election results in Ohio, because all eyes uh, were looking at Ohio, um, because we were looking to see if Trump still had any any staying power within the uh, GOP. You had a couple of candidates, uh, Josh Mandel, uh, J.D. Vance was the name that you kept hearing in the news a lot. Um, vying for the president's uh, or the former president's um, endorsement, you had two candidates getting in, you know, each other's faces during a debate, almost getting physical uh, with one another. Uh, both of them looking to get Trump's endorsement. Trump bypasses both of them, and in fact, according to Politico, he told aides he was impressed with no one else but JD Vance, who he actually took out with golfing and actually complimented him and said he's a handsome guy. Of course, JD Vance seems to be enduring the flattery and enjoying the benefits from being Trump's new pet uh, because now he's the nominee. And so according to Politico, he wins 32.2% uh, of the electorate. Josh Mandel only gets 23.9%. What's interesting is that Matt Dolan, the one candidate who acknowledged that the 2020 election was legitimate, the one candidate who took a stance against Trump in January 6th and everything like that, he only came out with 23.3%. Uh, well, Tim Ryan goes on uh, Morning Joe uh, yesterday, and he says, you know what? We're aiming for that 23.3% of the vote that Matt Dolan got. Matt Dolan got. Um, he said he was the most anti-Trump GOP Senate candidate, and we're going to get him. We're going to get that electorate. He also pointed out that J.D. Vance has a position that went against the grain as it pertains to providing aid to Ukraine. So he said, we're going to go and get Eastern European Americans vote in Ohio. I want to get your thoughts on whether or not you think uh, Tim Ryan is making a safe bet that he can pull 23.3% of Ohio Republican voters who voted for Matt Dolan 
the most anti-Trump GOP Senate candidate in Ohio. I am never comfortable with any politician ever suggesting they have a safe bet for someone who's going to vote for them. We saw how that turned out in 2016. Uh, we don't need to see it again. Push, fight, actually campaign, but don't just think, oh, we're, we're going to get him because he he's he's alienating the Ukrainian bloc or he's alienating the, the anti-Trump bloc within the GOP. You don't know how those people are, what, what is more important to those people, what is more important to those voters until you actually get to the polls. And we have seen time and time again, particularly in the Democratic Party, uh, over-relying on the belief that one particular issue is going to be the most important clincher and that they're just going to fall in line and then not following through on what needs to be done. Hillary Clinton did it to disastrous results in 2016. Uh, politicians have done it repeatedly over and over again. Uh, I can never can never be on the side of that is a safe bet. Nothing is a safe bet in politics, but especially not uh, resting on the laurels of well, I guess they didn't like that guy, so they must like me then. There, it didn't. You know, in, in 2000, it didn't work out. Uh, there's always some somewhere else that they can go to vote if they don't feel comfortable. Uh, there's a reason why, uh, I, honestly, I can't even remember his name right now, but Jill Green and, uh, or Jill Stein and uh, uh, Gary, what's his name? Yeah. Uh, successful back in 2016 is because there were, other, there were technically other options and there was somewhere else that they could decide to go. So absolutely not. He should absolutely not uh, be confident in that bet. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a safe bet. I don't think Tim, um, I don't think he's going to win. I, I honestly think he's going to lose by a large margin, right? I think what this showed us is that the Republican Party, the coalition is a lot more dynamic than we give it credit for. Um, I think the best example I can use for, you know, people who are, you know, more focused on like Democratic Party is like Bernie Sanders, you know, his influence in certain states would have, you know, more of an impact than it would say, like if he goes to Alabama in a, a primary. So like what I saw is that Trump had influence in Ohio, right? So this message, this magna, you know, um, you know, rhetoric flows in Ohio. So Tim um, Ryan, he's in trouble. But you saw in Georgia, the opposite, right? Um, Trump endorsed uh, David Perdue, and he's about to get blown out um, in that governor's race, right? So in the swing state where it matters in his next election, it looks like Trump doesn't have that much influence in Georgia uh, in comparison to in that Republican Party. But he has this influence in Ohio where, um, you know, Tim Anderson or what's his name? I forgot his name. Um, he, he's he's going to lose, I think, by a big margin because Ohio has been going towards the right nine ten percent of the last couple of election cycles the thing i like tim ryan, has, tim ryan has to go get the vote and, and and this idea that somehow uh disaffected republicans are going to vote for him you know because they're disaffected with jd vance or, or donald trump it, it, there's no straight line on that um republican voters tend to hate democrat candidates period, full stop. They just don't like them. And they'd rather vote for Donald Trump than for the most qualified uh, Democrat in many instances. So so Tim Ryan and any other candidate out there has to do the retail job that, re that, that, that elective politics is. You got to go where the voters are. You got to convince them that you provide an opportunity for them that they want, whatever that is, or whatever the issue or issues are for them. And, and this idea that there's some mythical Republican that can come home to the Democrat Party is just nonsense. You gotta sell them on the guy or lady who's running and their program, and that it works for that particular 
voted. The thing yeah, I love about Oh, go ahead, Oliver. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think it points to something that, you know, now Professor Cook, Cassandra, and Zach have already pointed on, that Democrats need to do the work and stop trying to call in, phone in uh, uh, presidential elections and get up and, you know, knock on doors and do whatever you need to do in order to, to, to again, Democrats care more about looking right and appearing to be moral instead of doing the work necessary in order to win. And they need to get out of that mindset and if they want to see any results. And I think this is an example of that. Like, And then I think another point is going after that when, again, in Georgia, Dave Perdue loses. And I think it's not directly correlated, but Georgia and their politics specifically and how they've expanded the electorate due to that ground game. I think that and this has always been the case. This is when, when folk on the left decide they want to expand the electorate, they tend to do well. Um, and that's something that sh they should also work incredibly hard um, to do. Like, it's just not enough to say, well, we hope, again, it, it speaks more to the same politics of the Democratic Party for the last 40 years. Well, we hope we can capitulate to moderates and conservatives on some issues and they'll like us enough. They do not like you. They will never like you. It took a deeply historical, unpopular president, a historically unpopular president in the midst of the worst global pandemic we've seen in a century to beat to 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 get the moderate vote. Stop. It's not gonna work. Expand the electorate. Do the work. So this is the thing I love about Tim Ryan. And I love them as a presidential candidate too. And that's why the Senate race in Ohio was my favorite race of the primary season this year. Um <clears throat> you do have tech billionaire Peter Thiel uh of donating uh you know a lot of money to to Trump backed candidate JD Vance. But the thing about Tim Ryan is that he knows how to speak the populist blue collar language, I think. And he does it in such a, have you ever heard his, uh, you know, impassioned speech, speeches on the House floor? He does it in simple terms um, that really gets to the core of the issue that he's getting at. And so he seems to be taking an America first approach. Uh, Fox reported that he said a lot of voters who voted for Trump who are going to come, <clears throat> there are a lot of voters who voted for Trump who are going to come and vote for me because we're talking about China. We're talking about manufacturing. We're talking about rebuilding the country. Uh, he said this isn't about punishing businesses or having all the unnecessary culture wars. It's about economics, jobs, freedom, economic freedom, and more money in people's pockets. And, you know, that tune seems to harmonize perfectly with the backdrop of inflation to me. Um, and I think he's a very strong, I think out of the candidates who ran, I think he was the best one uh, to get the nomination for the Democratic yeah. side. Yeah, Mike, I, I think he have been strong 10 years ago, but Ohio isn't a swing state no more. I mean, you're talking about a state that has gone 8%, almost 10%. Um, for the Republican in the last couple of elections, right? So some of these states are traditionally swing states, like it's not the same anymore. Uh, so I, I don't I don't see any route for him to win that election, um, you know, um, this November, um, because, you know, it is not that purple anymore, uh, from, from my opinion. Anyone else? And, and, you know, that's a fair point. You're looking at Obama getting it in 2008, 2012, you know, folks say, as Ohio goes, so goes the nation, especially no Republican president um, has gone on to become president without winning Ohio. Um, and Ohio, of course, has been <clears throat> solidly uh, in the Trump column since uh, 2016. But you know what? Um, I, I think that there's still hope for, for someone like Tim Ryan to pull some votes in Columbus, uh, Dayton, Cleveland, uh, Cincinnati, uh, and then move on to maybe some suburban areas. You're talking about uh, Portage County. You're talking about Summit County, Medina County, Wayne County. Holmes County, you know, all those surrounding suburban areas, similar to how the Democrats uh, were able to get Cobb County, 
and all those surrounding uh, metropolitan uh, suburban areas around the Atlanta area um, to take Georgia, you know, which we thought was a long shot, you know, going back before the pandemic, say around February of 2020, next thing we take Georgia, I, I think it's still viable. Anyone else? Well, I, I hope you're right. I mean, I think one of the big differences between a place like Georgia and a place like Ohio are the economies of those two states. And, and Georgia is a um, uh, is a growing economy, uh, and it has a, a tremendous influx of people from other places coming to Georgia to 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 join that. Ohio classically Rust Belt, and 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 again, this speaks to what Oliver talked about. Repub Democrats for years have misled those folks in Ohio about what they were going to do to make their lives better. You can't, on the one hand, say to someone. We think we ought to close all these coal mines and these factories because it pollutes the environment and we want to be environmentally correct. But then you close the plant, close the mine, take the jobs, but you don't provide them any way to support themselves or their families. They aren't real warm and fuzzy for, to you about that after you do that to them. So, so if you're going to promote environmentalism, and I'm good with that, if you're going to close mines, I'm good with that. If you're going to close steel plants, okay, but then you got to give the people who used to work there some way to support themselves, some way to help themselves progress through their lives, to feed their families, to send their kids to college or whatever. And the Democrats haven't done a good job of that, of delivering on those promises of, we think this is bad and we want to stop it and we're going to do this over here that's good for you. And so what Ryan's challenge is going to be is convincing those people who have had their hearts broken for the last 10, 15, 20 years by Democrats' promises of a better life, and they didn't get it, to convince them to vote for him. And that's 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 a that's a big lift. That's a big lift because he has a lot of people who have a lot of negative history with so-called Democrats. Well, if there's no one else, uh, Professor Fred Cook, Zach Tolan, Cassandra Noff, Jerry Ford Jr., Oliver Tulusma, it has been a privilege and an honor to be engaging in such a uh, diverse and robust discussion with you scholars. Um, you know, I am going to take a hiatus. <laughs> I did mention it last week, but you know, after the week we had, you know, I had no choice. I had to have this panel and I had to bring out, you know, the panels that we had and, you know, they didn't disappoint. Um, and so this was an extended edition, but I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the discussion and I'm appreciative to each of you for making time. Uh, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude episode 64. Again, that's episode 64 of the Political Mike podcast. Congratulations to you, Zach, graduating this weekend. Yes, congratulations. Um, <laughs> and congratulations to the rest of you who are making your strides in the field of law. Um, honored to know you and have you in my circle. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude episode 64. Thank you guys for watching. Thank you.